Hello, I am Eli, a voice you're very familiar with, and this is another game review, but this time we're doing things a little bit differently because I am joined by Robbie Howell. Hey, good to see you, Eli. A pleasure to be on the show, and I'm very excited to introduce you to the wild and wonderful world of Diceless Gaming. Yeah, so for our listeners, um, you know, we've done a few reviews in the past, and we, for this one, I really wanted to talk to Robbie about it because this game, uh, Enclave, my, is that correct? Did I mess myself up right in the first video? You got it exactly right. You got it exactly Perfect. right, man. Is diceless. There's no dice to it, which I have never played a game that doesn't use dice. Um, so I've got a few questions about it, but um, because I have no real frame of reference, it's felt a little uh, weird for me to kind of review it by myself or, or anything like that so we're you know going to do a little bit of a, an interview um, perfect it often does feel weird I, I, I will say when people are when I presented the idea um, I've had many people be like how the heck do you pull that off where is the consistency man well and my my first thought was man this is a game that's going to require a lot of trust between uh, the game master, or in this case, the conduit, uh, and the players. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely true. Yeah, which, by the way, I read the conduit, and I'm like, you know, I've read a lot of different ways to say, you know, dungeon master, game master, storyteller, MC, all these different things. Like, conduit's pretty cool. I like conduit. That, that's... Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, conduit was a, a conscious wording choice that I made quite early on in my design career because I was like I I'll get to this in a moment but I didn't learn the term game master for quite a while uh, when I started first designing games and when I first heard it I'm like I'm not master I, <laughs> I'm barely in control of anything so I feel like I felt like conduit was a more accurate term to reflect uh, being a connection between the player and the world of the game rather than someone who's controlling right well and that's my um so my history with tabletop games is at 10, I bothered my brother who was 17 and his friends <laughs> until they let me play D&D with them. Awesome. Um, and lately he's taken to calling himself the disaster tour guide, <laughs> which is very fun. Um, Cute. And I, I usually use for myself some variation of game master, storyteller, game runner, host, you know, whatever thing like that. Um, so you, how long, what, what is your, any of our listeners know that my history with TTRPGs in a very broad sense is almost my entire life. Um, but we have a plenty of people, you know, my, uh, partner, for instance, she has only been playing any tabletop games whatsoever for the last maybe four years. Um, so what, what is your history with tabletop games or, or role-playing games kind of in general. Absolutely, yeah. I'm closer to you in that respect, but I, I have kind of a... I've, I've learned um, as I've immersed myself more in the world of TTRPGs that I have something of a, a strange background here. Because um, for me, I started first creating games when I was seven, um, but I did not learn what D&D was or indeed the term tabletop role-playing game or come into contact with any tabletop role-playing game besides my own until I was 17. Um, for me, 
I initially started creating games because I was trying to imitate and act out video games that my parents wouldn't let me play because we had a strict <laughs> electronics regimen, right? I'd see, I'd go to my friend's house, and I'd see them play all that sweet shit, and I'd be like, I gotta try it. <laughs> How do I do this without a computer? So, uh, and eventually I started, like, most of my early games were quite derivative, just me trying to, like, replicate what I was seeing. And then I, I started trying to make, like, branch out or, or make plays on them to make them more my own. And eventually I started making ones that were entirely my own. Like, I'd say my first good game that I made uh, was, I was about 14. Um, and Enclave uh, came about, I started to develop Enclave when I was about 16. And initially it was a Diablo 2 version, if you can imagine that. Like, my take on Diablo 2, one of my favorite games of all time. Which is, of course, directly influenced by D&D. And so I'm like two steps <laughs> connected to D&D. Um, but once, after I started working on Enclave, I, I started to learn about t tabletop RPGs, and I was like, oh, I, I, I've been kind of doing this the whole time. So I, I started trying to learn a little bit more about them, um, and a lot of my, my early Enclave players, um, when I was 20, uh, were big D&D fans. And so I got kind of influenced by them a little bit, but still definitely wanted to try to keep the heart and soul of what I, I was doing. Um, I still, to this day, have never played D&D. <laughs> At this point, I'm just seeing how long I can go. <laughs> yeah. It, well, um, and at this point, it, you have to kind of make an effort to not end up yeah. playing Dungeons and Dragons. Exactly. And I'm, I'm bullheaded, you know, so I'm going <laughs> to hold out as long as I can. And, and the game's evolved dramatically. Um, it's well past the Diablo 2 days, um, even though you can, like, kind of sniff influences here and there. Um, and it's been, I've been working on Enclave now for almost nine years. Wow. Yeah, I... You know, one of the things that I really found interesting um, reading over what you sent me was the setting itself, that it's this kind of multiverse kind of world, and each session is intended but not required to be a one-off mission. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that has a, a very pragmatic basis. And then the kind of cool parts of the world kind of were built around the pragmatic basis. Well, and it's it really appealed to me because in the past I have played home games where the premise was we're playing the same characters, but we are going, we you know, kind of a multiverse thing, but every time we go to a new setting, it's us taking these same characters and adjusting them for a different rule system so that we could play That's all sick. these different rules but play these same characters. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so that concept has a real strong place in my heart because that was one of my favorite uh, home games. I'm delighted to hear that, man. Yeah, for, for me it came about because uh, scheduling sucks. <laughs> and it's so much easier to just have every single session be like, okay, who showed up today? Great, yeah. we can make something work easily with this. Um, couple that with the fact that I, I generate my my missions, my, like, I guess to context, like, every Enclave session you're playing on a mission, and for me, I generate missions on the spot uh, for the most part, because I enjoy it, and I, like, I've, I've been doing it for so long that it's, it comes naturally to me. So I really liked having that variety where every single time I can take a different group of people, and I know I can I can make a mission happen, um, and it's going to feel completely different, and we might capture lightning in a bottle. Yeah, and that it, it is very interesting. So, you know, we, we've mentioned the diceless, that it, it, there's no dice rolling. Um, how does that work? I know in the, in the book here, uh, there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek comment about common sense. 
Um, yeah, well, it's, it's half tongue in cheek, but I would say that 90, 95% of what we do is just down to common sense. Yeah, I, well, and my, you know, coming from a background where I have always, I mean, not only have I always played games that have dice, I make and sell dice. So you're attacking my That's business. But... No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so, you know, it, it is, my first thought was like, well, then how do you be, do stuff. make sure it's yeah. fair? You know, like that, yeah. in, my, in my mind, well, the dice is part of what makes it fair. And then I think about it a little bit more and I go, well, you know, to, to what I said up top about, it seems like it requires a lot of trust between the players and the uh, conduit is that I've, and, and my players know it, and I'm sure anyone who's listened to our, our main podcast knows that I bend the rules constantly so that yep. my players <laughs> succeed. So if a player describes something to me and I'm like, I want you to succeed at that because I think from both a story and your character ability set, yeah, you succeed. So like it, that does make, you know, like you said, common sense. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it also sounds like you have like a really good fundamental set of, of kind of play values that align really well with Enclave. Because with, in Enclave, I'd say a pretty substantial chunk of the rule set is devoted to a, like letting you as the host directly reward players for their effort. And I, I noticed, um, you know, for, for our listeners, and it, it seems like this system itself really, this game really really rewards players for both taking risks and thinking about what they're doing absolutely that's 100 percent my goal um i've always despised randomness like it's 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 a bit of a meme among my my friends how much i will try to remove randomness from games um because i think that player skill expression is is beautiful and wonderful um and there's there's exceptions like don't get me wrong i love poker but the thing with poker is that the randomness is only one part of the game. And mm. a, another huge part is the, the mind games and the, the interpersonal the betting, right? If, if we had a dice-based game that you could bet before you rolled, that would be, like, super interesting to me because that adds another layer of skill expression to it. There is, I know you're avoiding Dungeons and Dragons, but maybe you'll give Savage Worlds a try. I've heard uh, of Savage Worlds, and that's like that has my infinite respect for trying to make it a little bit more interesting. <laughs> it, their Deadlands setting is something that I've always really enjoyed. It's weird west, you know, kind of thing. Um, but they did have a in duels, guns two gunslingers meet at high noon. You were able to like bet and be like, well, I'm I'm betting I have you know these tokens. I'm gonna bet this much, and it kind of all comes into a whole it's it's more complicated or simpler than i'm making it sound <laughs> but that is that that kind of thing you know to sell you on a different game while we talk about the game you designed <laughs> uh, <laughs> no that's the thing and from, you said a gunslinger does that it's um the concept because it's weird west the concept is uh for that is like two cowboys meet at high noon oh yeah uh to have a, a duel so in a diceless game, how do stats come into play? Sure. Um, well, I guess the easiest way is to give you the basic like action resolution chain, like if we're going to boil it down to that, right? So um, in, in Enclave, much like in a lot of other games that I've, I've studied and learned about, uh, it's very simple, right? 
the, the conduit is describing a situation. If we're like boiling it down, you know there's a lot more nuance than this. Sure. Conduit describes a situation. Um, player asks questions to get some clarifications. Once they have a decent idea, they describe what they're doing. Conduit then says, okay, how does this resolve? Um, like I said, the vast majority of the time, you can just say, yep, that's what happens. Um, because, you know, like we don't need people to, to explain themselves for walking down a hall. Sometimes we do, but not always. Um, and wherever you need more than just the player says that, where, wherever there's a, a question of success, uh, you start by asking the player to elaborate. There are, there are some exceptions to this, but typically speaking, if someone says, okay, I'm gonna head down that hall, and I know that there's something down that hall that will not lend itself well to just strolling down it, um, my first question would be, how do you wanna do that? And obviously this is a very simple situation. You can get really into depth with this for things like combat, uh, but, Let's say we come up to a scenario, like someone asked me, the person's jumping over, jumping over a gap in the floor. How do you say if they fall? Well, first of all, um, this is where stats would come in. Stats and Enclave are used as heuristics rather than something you roll against. Um, there are ways of kind of contextualizing what the person's capacities are that are often supernatural in a way that's a lot more approachable. Um, so you say, okay, um, you're trying to get over this gap. Well, what stats would help you get over the gap? Are you taking a running start? If so, Vigor is going to help out. Um, Regardless of what you're doing, your reflex is going to help because that's the main stat that influences agility. Uh, and oftentimes, you can you can kind of end it there because if someone has like quite high reflex um, and they're jumping a, a not unreasonable gap, yeah, you don't really have to ask them more about that. Once it gets a little dicier though, and the gap gets huge, or the stats aren't aren't really supporting it, or maybe they're wearing armor or one of a million other things, um, that's when you start to look at two resolution points. Um, one which outcome would tell a better story? Um, namely, if you're like, man, I just can't justify getting them across this gap, no matter what I do, is there a way that I can, for example, uh, have them missing the gap still lead to something satisfying that ha has some potential for interaction? Or um, you could say to yourself, like, is, is it just gonna be a better story if they can make it across? Has, has everything that's been building up to this point indicating that this is the way that this needs to go? Um, and two, if you're still not sure, and there's going to be a lot of cases you're not sure after that, you say to yourself, has the player earned it? In terms of not only their commitment to the story, um, you look at their, their efforts trying to character act, how, how much they're trying to interface with the story, their etiquette to the other players, uh, and if they've just been a, a wonderful person who you really enjoy hosting for, give it to them. That's what I say. If you're not sure and they've been great, give it to them. Um, if you, you only make them just point blank fail with no ability to interact, interface, stuff like that. If one, you've given them outs leading up to the to the event, um, and two, there's just no way to common sense your way around it. Right. Um, and you can present outs in all sorts of indirect ways that don't make it feel like railroading, but it, the worst thing that you can have in a diceless game is an out of the blue cheap shot. All right. Yeah, that makes sense to me as as someone who is has always described themselves as a uh the players are the heroes yeah kind of gm this makes a lot of sense to me of but as you're describing it also kind of makes me think back to you know you said you kind of the the earliest possible inception of this would have been when you're seven and it makes me think like yeah this feels kind of like a game i would have been playing at seven Absolutely. More sophisticated, but there is something that harkens back in that direction that is very appealing. Yeah, um, I would absolutely agree with that. 
So what? A, let's talk about um, uh, stamina and essence. Totally, yeah. I've been reading over this, and while I think I understand it, why don't you go ahead and explain it to me? Sure. So in Enclave, I try to make every single mechanic have either a common sense reason or a storytelling reason. And stamina essence, I would say, are like most of them, both. Uh, but they start from a common sense perspective. Enclave is a game that has a lot of supernatural elements. Um, and it's also a game where your characters are being put through a lot of physical exertion. Because of that, um, it wouldn't make sense for you just to be a tireless robot and be doing things constantly without getting tired. And if you get physically tired, you should get magically tired. And so stamina is a measure of your character's physical energy. Essence is a measure of your character's magical energy. Um, and therefore, as you do stuff in one of those two uh, categories, you will start to have your stamina and essence drain. Um, for both, you could, you could totally have gone about this um, by just saying, oh yeah, just like, you know, approximate it, estimate it, and, uh, and make do, right? Um, from a game design perspective. And I used to host Enclave like that, but the issue with that is that not only is, what does it feel like to be magical, magically tired? How can people contextualize that? And it's, it's also quite hard to keep track of. Hmm. Um, similarly with, with stamina, even though we all know what it feels like to be tired, I don't know if we, most of us know what it feels like to be like just ran a marathon on the brink of death tired. Um, <laughs> And so the way I, I've approached stamina and essence is rather than just leave them to be completely intuitive, um, and this is kind of the approach I take with a number of mechanics in the game, I try to gamify them enough such that they're easy to keep track of and they, they are, are easy for players to kind of implement um, and conduits to implement in-game without having to think too much about it. So the way I do it is that stamina and essence each have three thresholds. You start in the green, um, if you do a, a bunch of big, like big medium exertions, you drop down to yellow. A bunch more exertions, you drop down to red. If you would drop from red another threshold, you die. Period. <laughs> um, right. But every time you drop a threshold, um, and dropping a threshold, like it takes some work. Like you don't do it by accident. Um, and whenever you drop a threshold, uh, one of the things that comes along with this is symptoms because your character is getting more exhausted. So for stamina, this is obvious stuff. You know, if you drop into the yellow, you're panting, you're flushed, you're out of breath, um, maybe cramping up. Uh, when you get to the red, it's bad news bears. Like you might start like heaving because you're you're so tired right. um, and your body's so drained. But like I said, what does it feel like to be magically tired? Well, this threshold system lets me actually classify that and and say when you're in the yellow and uh, in in essence, um, you are starting to hallucinate. Your moods are starting to get erratic. Because um, I think that's kind of a, a cool way of, of comparing magical exhaustion to physical exhaustion. Because like magic, magic feels more spiritual and emotional and based in your soul. And so your soul is fried. <laughs> and yeah. then when you, when, you're, when you hit the red, it gets even worse. And also you start just developing spontaneous magical injuries all over your body. And what all of this is secretly boiling down to is it's secretly giving players acting opportunities. And if you can like really lean into your exhaustion symptoms, and you can like do something sick by showing like your character battling through this this adversity and this torment. Frankly, uh, it makes your conduit want you to succeed more because, like I said earlier, how much effort is your player putting in? If they're battling through exhaustion symptoms and doing it well uh, and staying in character while doing so, that's gonna make that's gonna make your your conduit want want you to succeed. Right, right. I this is all very very cool to me. Um, so I. You know, first, obviously, the first one 
of the uh, you know character creation is one of the places I always start with a new system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the I, I, I like how simple it is, which everything you have described so far while being very, very cool is simple. you know it's not complicated, which it, it sounds like it shouldn't be. <laughs> You you make it complicated enough and you have to start including dice. Uh, And the, the, you know, picking the class, having that be a big part of your abilities is very cool to me. And I'm curious about um, if I'm, because I I don't think I understand under, like using the gunslinger as an example, because the gunslinger and the thunderbird were the first two I saw that was like, this is, this is what I would be doing where I play. Good pick. These are the two things I would be doing. (laughs) Um, But like for the gunslinger, uh, you know, right at the top there, there's combat social utility with these various uh, pips kind of, or bars going on there. What, what does that mean? Yeah. So all that means is it means that someone who's skimming through the book can look at a class and say, Oh, that's a really social class. I want to play a social class. Um, It's just like a, like a, a glance value way of sifting through um, based on playstyle and what a class is good at on average. Um, I put that in because one of my, my play testers um, said, man, I, I, I wish I could just kind of like glance at it and see what, whether I would be interested or not. Kind of, can you put in something like they have in League of Legends where they have the little bars? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And, um, that, and that, that is great to me. Like that is... <laughs> I'm glad you such like a great like one of the games we reviewed previously was uh everyday heroes and one of the things i gushed about was that very early on there was a, a cheat sheet for all of the classes and it told you how how complicated is this class that's sick and yeah, like, i love that if you're brand new to the game this is perfect that like yeah, mad scientist sounds really cool, but if the game is telling you, hey, this is going to be really complicated, <laughs> you know, it's just really cool to know. So I lo- I love that this is in uh, Enclave as well. Yeah, um, I'm so glad to hear it. Um, is it okay if I pivot back to something you said a little absolutely. earlier? Absolutely. Thanks, man. So you said if you get too complicated, you need to bring in dice. Now, as you might imagine. I have some disagreements with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, if I may give a little bit of background here. Sure. Um, I said earlier I've been developing Enclave for nine years. I've been developing this version of Enclave for nine years, uh, the one that I, I really got off the ground when I was about 20. Um, I, was, I was doing this via a legacy game um, that I had about, I'd say at our height, we had like 50 consistent players for that one. And we had like... It had been tried by like 200, 250 people. So like, good, but nowhere near what I'm trying, like the scale I'm trying to go at now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that legacy game was vast. (laughs) It was one of the most complicated things I've ever built in my life. And uh, we didn't write anything down even for the the first like five years besides character sheets and classes. And then we're people like, oh, Robbie, can you actually like say how you do this? And I was like, maybe. (laughs) Uh, And so we kind of in a couple of, little supplements here and there, especially for more complicated mechanics. Um, This rule set is my first attempt to actually write everything down. Uh, And the reason I bring this up is because in the the legacy game, not only was it it vast and and had a lot more mechanics than I have in this version, we also had over 120 classes. 
um, some of which were just wildly <laughs> difficult uh, to describe. So with, with this rule set, um, if I had come out of nowhere with a brand new Dysis game no one had ever heard of that had a 500-page rule set and 120 classes, I'd be laughed out of the room and it would cost me a lot of money. Yeah. So I'm, I, try, I was like, let's see if I can strip this thing down as much as possible, make it an accessible introductory point, and then my hope is if this, if this game goes well, if the Kickstarter goes well, um, to introduce um, edit and release rule sets that incrementally add more complexity to the game without repeating anything from a previous rule set. So you can like buy into whatever complexity level of the game you want and also just incrementally add more and more and more classes. That sounds awesome. Because um, the, the way to add complexity in a Dysless game is slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that's awesome to me. I, so our, our listeners know that our very first season of this podcast um, was in a homebrew D&D world that I made with uh, a bunch of new races and classes and things that I designed. Yeah, that's awesome. So game design itself is a very fascinating thing to me. And I, like, as much as this system makes sense to me as you're saying it, as I'm reading it, I'm also sitting here going, I could never have made this. Like, there is a level of free flow to this that my uh, uh, very obsessive nature could not handle making. <laughs> I, th I think you could have. Um, and speaking of the Kickstarter, I... You know, obviously, uh, when you got in contact with us, I checked it out. And, you know, speaking of, as of this recording, it looks like you're funded. Yeah, we hit 100% funding. Now we're, we're going for stretch goals. The first stretch goal is a, uh, a more robust progression system. That was one of the hardest cuts I, I initially made from this rule set um, because progression in legacy game was ridiculously convoluted. <laughs> um, but I think that, Especially if people are demonstrating a lot of interest in the rule set, I like we're doing great so far. We're, we're, we hit full funding in two weeks, um, and we have two weeks to go. But I, I think that if we get if we get that much more support, it will tell me like yeah, we we got to have more progression than is in there now because that's what people are looking for, and it's one of the main pieces of like totally valid criticism that I, I've got um, when when putting my game out there to other reviewers. Yeah, and it it is one of those things because I thought about it and I was like. You know, I've, in all of my games, both home and for the podcast, I'm generally pretty loosey-goosey about advancement to begin with. Yeah. Um, you know, my players know that I might just randomly decide, no, all of you have a new feat now because you did this thing. You deserve this. So a, a strict character progression is obviously not something that uh, I need from a game. But having that character progression, I'm very, very excited to see and I really really hope that you get there because I I love the idea of continue of like thinking about the system and thinking about what kind of stuff I would run and thinking I would love to just keep be able to just keep the same characters and do this as a larger form uh, campaign. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that, man. And I I love progression. I I just know that I have a tendency of bloating it. And I I will say that. Because we're, we've hit our funding, I'm, I'm pretty much locked in to do at least one more edition of Enclave um, after I get this one out there. Um, and when I do in the, in the next edition, progression is pretty much the top priority. Um, I must have my progression system. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
I have, a, I have a question that's not really related to Enclave, but it is related to game design. Of course. Um, is there something that you you tend to include in your games just every time? <laughs> Anyone who knows me listening to this will know the answer to this. The number 12. I okay. adore the number 12. Um, many jokes have been made. I have received I have received many very funny haha Discord messages and emotes, uh, but the yeah the number twelve I just think has such beautiful symmetry. I'm a I, symmetry makes my brain smooth and I love it, so I I will put the number twelve in anywhere possible. You can find it in a number of places in this Enclave rule set. Yeah, I I'm glad to hear that because I get a hard time really? for my I'm such a goober. and my players <laughs> so much because I love megafauna. Giant animals. I love it. The amount of times that I have made my players fight a giant crab, (laughs) I know is ridiculous, but they're amazing. So it's, I you know, it was just a question in the back of my mind as we were talking about game design. I'm like, every single time I've ever done a campaign, anytime I've designed like modified a rule set to work with whatever I'm doing, I have always included megafauna. Please tell me I'm not crazy for having a thing that I am obsessed with. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I honestly I could think, list like a dozen others. I'd, I'd say uh, like more seriously than number twelve, which I do love, but is not like nearly as as thematic as what you're describing here. Yeah. Um, another one for me would be mythology. I adore mythology, oh, and I will take any opportunity to inject folklore references and myth- like in in the Enclave rule set. You look at the classes, and like half of them have direct mythology parallels. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was looking at that, and, you know, well, to go back to the Thunderbird, I love that it's, you know, you have Zeus and Thor as the first two examples, because obviously, you know, general Wonder American Wonder. culture, that's what people are going to be most familiar with, but I love that you included Indra. Oh, yeah. He's, um, he's honestly cooler than either of the former two, I, if you read, yeah, the, if read the myths. He's sick. I'm, I'm, leaned, I'm, I'm leaning in that direction myself, so it... <laughs> It was very, very cool uh, to see that. Thank you, man. Oh, for, for context, for listeners, um, for each class, I try to list a couple of examples of characters from like history, fiction, myth, media. That would be like archetypal examples of that class. Um, and I, I, for the Thunderbird, obviously, that's a very mythological class. So I put like a whole bunch of different gods it has parallels to. There, there is one... Uh, with the Thunderbird that I did not think of until I saw it as being correct, which is Peppa from Peppa Madrigal from Encanto. Yep. <laughs> I had a friend suggest that, that one. It just never would have occurred to me. Yeah, she's just really interestingly. Yeah, it, it is very, very funny. Uh, My personal like, favorite is for the Wanderer class, we have the cat in the hat as one of the examples. Yeah. And it was one of those things where when I thought of it, I was like, this is mind-blowing. This is a game-changer movie. It, you know, the the first one that caught my mind as someone who reads The Hobbit every single year, uh, Bilbo Baggins, and it's like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously, that's Bilbo. The, of course. He may have only wandered <laughs> the one time, but when he wandered that one time, he did a lot of wandering. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did, like, a, a short wander the second time. Yeah, yeah. You know, a small one. Um, so, it, it, I am... I, I've heard of diceless games before, and I think a part of me was always like, eh, that's a little too close to LARP for me. And yeah. as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, uh, 
for some reason, tabletop nerds, for a very long time, a lot of us have had this mindset, well, at least I don't LARP. <laughs> yeah, you're sparing yourself a lot of money. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Um, well, you would you would think that, but I also, uh, my partner and I do the occasional cosplay, and I build props, so, you know, I might as well just be doing it. And totally. that is, yeah. like, my first thought was, like, reading through a lot of the stuff is like, oh, this is so cool. You know, like I said, it, it feels like playing pretend as a little kid again. As much as I always feel like I'm playing pretend like a little kid when I'm running any game, there is something about a diceless game, and this one in particular, that feels very strong to that. Uh, and it, it I, my brain made the LARP parallel, and then my, I went, eh, maybe I might want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I've never LARPed before, but I have a number of friends who have, and I've, I've studied a couple of LARPs. They are incredibly cool, and there's some of them that are just remarkably sophisticated. I would say the closest parallel to Enclave would actually be something more like MUDs, if you know uh, multi-user dungeons back from the uh, early days of the internet. Yeah, I have a, a faint memory. Yeah, the, it's not a perfect parallel. Um, and I, I would say there's many other things that Enclave is connected to. But I find that, that freeform storytelling bounded by some amount of rules, it, without any other uh, accoutrements like added, is, is a very recurring theme. Uh, in frankly, in human history, but especially especially more contemporary history, um, and I, I think it's because it actually strikes at something a bit more primal. Like it's, it's this this storytelling instinct within us that makes us want to try to create our own myths. As as a lover of mythology, that's just what I see every single time I, I look at a game. Uh, frankly, any game, but I think diceless games get even closer to it. Uh, and and I will say. Um, having now looked at Dice's games out there and researched them pretty thoroughly, Enclave is very atypical. Um, I'd say the closest parallel, and if you're looking for a game that is kind of like Enclave, would be Amber. Um, it's a, a really interesting game that has a completely different philosophy and approach to it. And I think um, Amber would probably be quite appealing to a number of Dice, uh, dice players, but it is very crunchy, like really heavy-duty on the rules. Yeah. And I, I do want to cut in for anybody who's going to come at me. I don't look down on LARPing, all right? A couple of my very good <laughs> friends LARP LARPing, all the time, and it sound, A, it sounds awesome, and B, it sounds like so much work to make happen. It really is. It's unbelievable how much yeah. work it is. Um, so we're, we're nearing the end uh, of our time here, so... One of the things I want to talk about is that everything I've read here is very, is very much so, here's what you need to make this game happen. Um, Excellent. And I, I appreciate, it. one of the things that I know a lot of people will appreciate, even though I have no preference in this regard, um, but I know a lot of pe people will appreciate that it's 54 pages when you include the cover and back cover. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's not like it's the Pathfinder uh, core rule book that's a thousand pages uh, yeah. as much as somebody like me can always will always appreciate just a huge heavy book in my lap while I'm trying to make a character there <laughs> is something very very appealing about oh I can flip through this and get a feel for how this is going to run in an hour yeah 
Absolutely, and I mean, hopefully, uh, if if all goes well, eventually I'll be able to I'll be able to give you a nice gigantic book that has all of it together. But for for me, I think getting the starting point as approachable as possible and as cheap and affordable as possible is absolutely freaking critical. Um, and you, you can add complexity after. Like I said, I, I adore complexity. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that you think that the length is, is approachable. I think that um, because of my conversations with the printer I've been using, we're gonna, the, the end total is gonna be either 56 pages, um, or if we hit any of the class stretch goals, unlikely, but you never know. Um, I have stretch goals for adding like multiple more classes. Those would, each of those stretch goals would add four more pages. Well, and that's, you know, I, I think that would still be very approachable considering each class is only two pages. Yeah. You know, two to three pages. So it, it I, I think it still falls in a very approachable regard. If I'm able to get our, my editing schedule in it, I might just, I kind of really want to run a game in this now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, like I said, we're at the uh, end of our, our interview here. Uh, I'm going to have the Kickstarter in the uh, episode notes, but if you want to go ahead and plug anything else. Thank you so much. I, I, again, really appreciate you having me on. Thank you all so much for listening out there. Uh, in addition to the Kickstarter, uh, if you'd like to learn more about Enclave, I have a YouTube channel solely devoted to Enclave, as well as a Discord server. Um, the Kickstarter has... Two weeks left uh, as of, I mean, just under as of recording now. It's going to end on September 8th. Any support you can provide, whether monetary or sharing it around, would be tremendously appreciated. Um, and, you know, you guys are listening to this on the feed. You know all about my stuff. I'm not going to waste the time here. Um, <laughs> I think you should absolutely check out Enclave. If you can't afford to donate, then do that thing that Kickstarter lets you do and be like, hey, can I go ahead and get this book, though? go ahead and do that though um it it looks super fun i'm excited i i gotta find time to try this out myself uh thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and uh to all of our listeners thank you for listening as much as you do